Well, good morning. Some of you will notice, probably most of you have not, that we're in the midst of changing a few things around here. Just beginning, there were some speaker covers posted up there. Uh, once upon a time, they are now gone. Um, some covering of some brick down low, and we're in the middle of, uh, really, I guess, just beginning some um, changes here in our worship center, just some enhancements. Some of them will be visual, and uh, it'll be better for us that are worshiping in person and going to add a lot to our online and streaming image coming up. And, and other changes like sound and lighting and video, you will, you'll notice a difference here in the next few weeks as we move through that. Again, they're just going to significantly enhance not only our experience here where we're in the worship center, but also for our streaming and for our online, those type of things. It's uh, for me, it's a, I don't know, it's humorous or odd or what, but like most of these uh, changes, discussions, they've been in process probably for the 20 years since I've been in Troy. Like one of these days, <laughs> so one of these days is upon us, and that's a, that's a good thing. Now, that's good, but I'm super excited about some things that are going on just as we begin to unfold a more um, full and... Uh, complete ministry reopening of the church. And so there's several things that are coming up in the next few uh, months that would be good for you to engage in, might require some registration, certainly we'd like you to, to pray for. We have next Sunday morning, we're going to have an information meeting. We're going to Pine Haven. The trip that got canceled last year is on for this July. We still have about half of our seats, about 10 spots that are available. So if you're interested in potentially going with us to Montana in July on a mission trip next Sunday at 9.30, so you have to come early. Those of you who get here like at 10.35, it won't work, okay? But at 9.30, come, and we'd love to just talk with you about that. See Danny Miller, myself, if you have some questions about that. We also are going to begin in August our Rejoicing Spirits Ministry. It's a ministry to the disabled. It's a, it's a next step for our night to shine and, and really almost completely different as we want to engage a community and invite them to be part of us and part of worship. And so if you want to get some more information about what that's going to look like, that March 25th is a Thursday evening. I invite you to come here and look at what that next step in outreach to and our ministry to the disabled is going to look like, and we would love for you to join with us in that. We're from the first week, a little over 20% uh, registered full for our marriage seminar conference that's coming up in uh, April on the 22nd and 23rd, or I'm sorry, 23rd and 24th. That's a Friday night and a Saturday. We'd love for you to join. All these things you can find at troycc.org on our website. You can get more information about, get signed up on those type of things. We have, um, we're breaking out into the camp again this year. We're excited about our camp that's going to happen this summer for our kids. But in the spring, we have a retreat for the junior and senior high in March and then for the elementary kids in April. And there's information about that on the website as well. And then for the men, there's going to be just an, an overnight coming on April 30th and May 1st. We're going to go up on Friday night, just hang out, uh, grill, eat meat, and do man things. <laughs> And then on Saturday, we're going to add some value to our camp and just do, have a work day up there 
And again, we just love for you to be involved in any and as much of these things that make sense for you to be involved in. I um, also want to just remind you that we are in the middle of a student minister search. Okay? And we could use your prayers. There are a lot of churches, apparently, that are in the middle of student minister searches. And uh, we just believe God has in mind who our next student minister is going to be. Um, but we're pretty sure that as of yet, he's not told us who that is. And so if you would just continue to pray with us that God would bring that person to us, then I would appreciate it. Again, all of these dates, everything is online, and uh, you can get more information on the website. Now, as we think about our study of Mark, okay, uh, just reflecting this week, I enjoy the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I enjoy preaching from them. I enjoy just the reflection, just doing a deep dive into them and thinking, okay, so what's that mean for us? What's that look like in our life when we apply the words of the Gospels to them? Um, I like to read them because I find unfolding before my eyes um, how God, in the form of Jesus, interacted with his creation. I've said for 30-plus years in ministry, like, if you want to know what God would do, fill in the blank. Look at the Gospels, because Emmanuel, God, was with us. And we got to see his life unfold. I see his love coming through in his words of compassion. I see his heart for hurting people, especially those who are marginalized by society. I watch in awe as he heals and he casts out demons and he stills the storms. And, and I really admire how much wisdom Jesus showed. Not only in what he said, but also in how he dealt with people that were just constantly agitating him and trying to make him look foolish. Now that said, I'm like also very convicted when I read through the Gospels. I can see Jesus' commitment and realize just like how much mine fails in comparison to that. Um, I see his compassion and feel like, like in my impatience and my pride and some of my oddities, just how, fall, how far short of his compassion I fall in that way. And what he's called me to be, like his patience and his love um, and his grace, they just remind me how much more of Chris needs to die <laughs> before I'm really going to be reflective of him. And I'm confident that God's grace through Jesus' death is more than sufficient to cover my sins because that's what God has told me and he's promised me. But the Gospels inspire me um, to live more faithfully to God and to be more like Jesus. And so as we are trekking through Mark, I hope you are listening to God say, if you want to be more like Jesus, if you want to be more like me, listen to what I have to say. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Okay. Now we're going to take a look at this passage that became the basis for how we titled this series, Who Do You Say I Am? 
here in Mark chapter 8. We've read all the things that Jesus has done so far in his ministry. There's more to come. And now Jesus is going to bring things to a head concerning what that means in terms of who he is and what it's going to mean in terms of his life and for ours. So he starts by asking his disciples the question. Okay? Now, Jesus has taught his disciples in a number of ways, a lot by his example, by his words to this point. In our passage today, he's going to ask them a probing question. Pick up with me in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Okay? Now think about that apart from the Pharisees, Right? Jesus had developed a pretty good reputation among the people. Despite um, the efforts of these religious leaders who continued to promote one of two ideas, either that Jesus was you know, in partnership with the devil himself or that he was just out of his mind completely in some way or another, most people saw Jesus as some sort of a prophet, okay? meaning a messenger from God. That's why the disciples answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So minimally, they believed, I think, that God had sent Jesus because no one could do the things he did, right? specifically the miracles, unless God was with them, the healing. All of those things, right? But most people didn't understand that Jesus was not just another messenger from God. Okay? That he was different, that there was more to him. And yet Jesus isn't content to ask them, what's everybody else think? He says then, who do you say that I am? Okay? I mean, they've referred to him as a teacher all throughout the book of Mark. And remember two weeks ago when they continued to realize, yeah, but he's, he, he's more than that. And they answered, remember, after he stilled the sea and the wind, and they asked the question themselves, who is this? In response to his miracles okay, and his power, they knew he was something else. <laughs> And Peter gets the prize here in the text because he answers the question right when he says, you are the Messiah. Maybe some of your versions will say you are the Christ. In a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? And with these words, we really watch the narrative in the Gospel of Mark change because Jesus begins to challenge, and to change their thinking. Okay? Now, for us, 
Jesus being the Messiah is a bit more obvious, right? Because we've read the end of the story. We know what happens. But try to remember as we read through this gospel that all of this is unfolding before their eyes and in their lives like in real time. I mean, Jesus had healed a lot of people. On multiple occasions now, he'd fed a lot of people with next to nothing to start with. And he showed so much compassion. And yet the common expectation of the Messiah in Jesus' day was that he would, he, he would be a political figure. Right? He was going to free Israel from Roman domination. That's what they all knew was going to happen. And yet Jesus, he didn't really seem to care a whole lot about politics, if at all. And he certainly didn't seem to be rising through or at least desiring to rise through the social rankings to some kind of place of prominence. And so while Peter gets credit for figuring out the answer of who Jesus is, the Messiah... I think neither he nor the other disciples, the other disciples, had any clue about how that was actually going to play out in life. And so their thinking had to change because the reality of Jesus being the Messiah came with strings attached. And so Jesus now is going to spend time, in our case, the rest of the book of Mark, in their case, this time that goes ahead explaining more clearly what he's only alluded to before. Previously, he'd given them pieces of his purpose, the purpose of his coming, and now he's going to begin to explain the implications, what it means, what it looks like. Back in Mark chapter 8, pick up in verse 31. He, being Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like, don't don't just brush over verse 32. Have you ever told God what God should think? (laughs) Ever told him what he should? I have, right? As foolish as it is and as it sounds, you know, whether it's in... um, Goodness, so many different ways. I mean, I, I told him what he should do in that hospital room six weeks ago, I guarantee you. You know? I, I told him what he should do about that driver in front of me who's driving me nuts many, many times. About my enemies and about my friends and what he should do in the lives of my family members and all of those type things. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him, meaning, no, 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 no. Don't talk about this dying stuff. I mean, you've got Romans to get rid of. You've got prominence before you, all of those things. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus begins to give the disciples some very specific teaching about his upcoming suffering and his death and his resurrection. 
And they are only just beginning to understand his real purpose and what it actually means when they said, Peter said, you are the Messiah. So there's a shifting point in Mark from who Jesus is that he's been laying out before them through all the things he has done to what God sent him to do. Three times in the next three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to um, explain to them the necessity of his suffering as a part of his journey of obedience. And in the end, though not very sharp along the way, that would describe you and me. Like in the end, yeah, we'll get this right, but we're not always real sharp along the way. The disciples will understand that Jesus is truly God's Messiah through suffering instead of in spite of it. They are about um, Jesus' power and authority. That's part of why they're following him. They're going to struggle until the end with his weakness and his suffering and his death. Now, you can see immediately the struggle because Jesus talks about dying and Peter challenges him, even rebukes him for speaking about suffering and death. Do you remember when Paul wrote a little later in the New Testament that the cross would be a stumbling block to the Jews? Jesus starts talking about a cross and Peter stumbles immediately over the idea here. Okay? And like, who can blame these disciples? I mean, I just relate to them in so many ways. I mean, Jesus, like he, he has the power to immediately calm the seas. He has the power to, pe- to feed 5,000 men at one point and 4,000 at another, plus all these women and children from just a few loaves of bread and some fish. Like, he can heal people with a word from his mouth. When a woman just touches his garment, she's healed. He can command evil spirits. I mean, certainly someone like that is destined for honor and glory and prominence. Shoot, think about you and I. Like, we just fawn over the latest worship band, right? We spend time listening to that great Christian speaker. Got to have the newest book from that author that we love. We're even... Gaga over the latest online worship service from our favorite church. Imagine what we would do with Jesus. Like we would want to make him king, right? And that's exactly what they wanted too. So the disciples had to unlearn everything that they'd ever learned to expect of the Messiah. Jesus just didn't fit their mold, and yet they knew he was different. And they knew he was something special. And they knew he was sent from God. And so they're going to have to change like you and I have to change. You see, the religious leaders challenged Jesus to fulfill their false expectations. The disciples hoped that Jesus 
might fill their political fantasies, if you would. And if we're not careful, in our day and time, we can expect, find ourselves expecting that Jesus just, you know, fulfill whatever we think he should do. With our predispositions, sometimes we see and we hear when we read through the Gospels what we want to see and hear, even though it doesn't match reality. And so in pushing back against all these various ideas about the Messiah, Jesus is actually battling attempts to redirect his mission. He knew what he came for. He knew what it was going to involve. But Peter and the disciples and the religious leaders and the crowds and everyone who wanted healed and all of those people, they thought something completely different. Peter was right about Jesus being the Messiah. But like Peter, you and I as followers of Jesus, we've got to do more than just get his title right, just to know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Along with that, as a follower of Jesus, we've got to face a true reality that we find in our text here. Jesus' words not only to his disciples, but to you and I, those of us who would follow him, those of us who have a hope for eternity in heaven. Look at these words beginning in verse 34 of Mark 8. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple. Okay, now that's, that's a word we've talked about a lot in the last two years. A disciple meaning someone who knows Jesus and follows Jesus who's also being changed by Jesus and on mission with Jesus. And so, like, you can know that he is the Son of God. But if you don't follow him, if your life hasn't been changed and isn't being changed, if you're not on mission with him, then you're not where God wants you to be. You haven't yet become who God made you to be. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So here's a hard truth for us to just try to wrap our minds around today. Jesus teaches his disciples and us that the cross is not his to bear alone. The cross, it's necessary not only as a way of redemption, but also as a way of life, if they or you and I want to be his disciples. And if we're not careful, we also will be tempted to take the easier path, the path that avoids struggle and suffering. 
and sacrifice in our following of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Then he says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves here in, in Mark chapter 8. Meaning following Jesus is not like an extracurricular activity that you sign up for. Not a Sunday-only commitment. It's not a part-time calling. It's, Jesus would say, a very denial of ourselves, meaning specifically of our selfish ambitions in that way. It means that we have to, as his followers, learn to say what Jesus said, which was, not my will, but your will be done. And it's reflected in our everyday choices when we are willing to say no to ourselves and pursue instead God and his plans for our life. And Jesus calls his followers to take up their crosses. Now, I'm not sure I can adequately capture for you what it would have meant for the people in Jesus' day to hear these words. A cross for them meant, was meant for the lowest and the most despicable people in society. It meant humiliation. It meant condemnation. It meant death. Jesus was calling his followers then and us now, to humble themselves, to be willing to be despised and even be willing to give their lives for him as followers of Jesus. We've got to do so much more than, as the old hymns used to say, we, we, we can't simply survey the wondrous cross. We can't glory in it, as another hymn said. It's not enough for us to simply cling to the old rugged cross. Instead, we have to be willing to embrace Jesus' call to die to ourselves and to this life. Okay? Now, like when we first meet Jesus, that is an act of faith, right? Trusting that if I die to myself, I'll actually find real life. <laughs> Trusting that if I say no to, G to myself and yes to Jesus that, that something good is going to happen, I, yes to myself is all I've known. And yet as we grow in our Christian life, that later this becomes like a test of our faith, doesn't it? Because we're well aware that God is telling us to say no to ourselves, <laughs> And we're well aware that God is telling us to say yes to him. And those are two different things. And yet we've traveled some miles with him. And we found blessing in his way. And we found destruction in our own way. And yet it's still a test when we have to die to ourself and be alive to him by saying no. 
And the beauty is if we do that long enough, we start to see the fruit of change in our life. We realize these, this long path of obedience that we've been on has changed my life. And I am on mission with him. And my life is so much better and so different because I put myself to death and embraced him. See, Jesus wasn't just trying to gather followers who would marvel at his great works and all that he had done. But that's what he really had at this point, these disciples. Jesus was looking for followers who would follow his example. He was asking us to do what he was going to do, to give up our lives for the sake of God and his kingdom. Garibaldi was a, a great Italian military hero in the 19th century, right? And he raised an incredibly committed volunteer army. Um, and, and this was his appeal, right, for recruits. It was rather unique, okay? And these are the terms that he offered. He said, I offer neither pay, nor quarters, nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. He said, let him who loves his country with his heart and not just with his lips, let him follow me. And they did. But Garibaldi was not the first to make such an offer. Jesus came to this earth to bring salvation but also to train his disciples to carry his message to the world. And, and Jesus invites you to be his disciple. But make no mistake about it. He invites you and I to join him. Okay? It's not a request by him to just come where you are and go on your journey with you. Jesus lets us know up front like there's a commitment involved. And if we truly understand what Mark 8 is saying, we understand that Jesus is saying that commitment is going to cost you everything. It might be a job. It might be a, a relationship. Maybe he would ask you to forego a certain social standing. Maybe you would find that he's asking you to give away your wealth instead of stockpiling your wealth. Certainly he is asking us to give up our security and our comfort to refuse to seek revenge or any other number of prizes that the world seems to offer us. Now, I think that most of us have an idea at any given time what it is that Jesus is calling us to give up. How he's asking us to die to ourselves. All you have to do is take a step back and look at your life and see what it is that you are fighting against spiritually. To put Jesus at the center of your life, and that is your battle. That is what he's asking you to put to death 
right now, whatever that is. And he promises that for those of us who would deny ourselves, those of us who would take up our cross, those of us who would follow him, he promises that if we would give up our lives, that he would save our lives, that God would award us real life. He will award us eternal life. I mean, we've watched, haven't we, people? And maybe we've been those people who've tried to secure our lives and our legacies, people who invest in other people or organizations, and, and, and they think that, the, that prominence is gained through the praise of people. I mean, we've watched people uh, pursue fame and fortune and notoriety through their skills or their talents or any number of things. And we've also watched them one by one pass into obscurity. Today's person in the headlines is tomorrow's forgotten celebrity, if you would. Jesus warns of the foolishness of trading anything in exchange for your soul. Life is a choice, Jesus says. A choice to win the favor of the world or to win the favor of God himself. In 1000 AD, it was 160, 86 years after the death of the Emperor Charlemagne. Okay? The Emperor Otto had his um, tomb reopened, Charlemagne's tomb. And before them, they said, was an extraordinary sight. In the midst of all the finery that was buried with him, the gold and the jewels and the priceless treasure, there sat Charlemagne himself on a throne, a robe draped over now bones, a crown sitting on now a skull, and on his lap lay a Bible. On that Bible, that Bible is open to our text today, Mark chapter 8, and, and it says there's a, that there was a bony finger, and it was pointing right to Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So we begin this journey in the second half of Mark, this march toward Easter, if you would, on our church calendar. A journey in which all these passages that we're going to look at now are heading to one final place, the cross, for one final mission, the sacrifice of the Son of God for the sins of mankind, for your sins and for my sins. Years ago, there was a, um, a Christian drama that uh, depicted this little boy that was working in his parents' carpentry shop in first century Jerusalem. And one of his chores was to help build a cross, which he didn't really want to do. <laughs> but his parents didn't give him any option. He said, we have a contract with the Romans to build these crosses, and that's what we do, so we're going to build a cross. Well, in another scene in the drama... It depicts the boy just weeping to his parents. And they ask him, what, what's wrong? And he responds, I went to the marketplace and I saw Jesus of Nazareth. 
the man that we love to hear preach, and he was carrying my cross. They took him to Golgotha, and they crucified him on my cross. The parents said, oh, no, son, that wasn't your cross. Like other people in Jerusalem, they also have to build cross. He says, oh, yes, it was my cross. He said, when you weren't looking, I, I carved my name on my cross. And when Jesus was carrying that cross through Jerusalem, he stumbled and he fell right in front of me. And I looked and I saw my name on that cross. Listen, if you look closely, you will see the name Chris Heiss on that cross. And you'll see your name on that cross because he died for my sins. And he died for your sins. And if any of us want to receive the benefit of the work that happened on that cross, we have to embrace that cross ourselves. When, when people accept Jesus here at Troy Christian, oftentimes we have them repeat the words from this text, but really from the, the parallel passage in Matthew 16, verse 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we have them say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then follow that with a commitment that says, and I want him as my Savior and as my Lord. Jesus reminds us today that that is a decision to die to ourselves and a choice to live for him. Are you going to begin that journey this very day? <laughs> Embrace him and his work, and start a journey on his work inside you. We would love to help you do that. Many of you have done that, and yet the text reminds you today that, wow, I'm, I'm kind of off path on this dying to self piece. <laughs> I'm pursuing my life and my goals and my gain and my fortune and my status and my security. And Jesus would say, that is a dead end if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to really live, you're going to have to die all over again. If there's a decision that you want to make, if there is a Jesus that you want to embrace, if there is something that you are just struggling with in your life and you're like, I need someone to pray with me about this. After I pray, while we sing, after the service, find one of our staff one of our leaders, are spread all throughout this room and just say, would you help me meet Jesus? Would you help me get back on track? Would you help me with this thing that is just burning my heart so deeply? Let's pray together. Father, good Father that we sang about, meet us where we are today. Lord, our heart is to live for you, but it is a conflicted heart so often. It is a, a heart that compromises, that looks for the easy way, that gets caught up in the things of this world. And yet, Lord, we know that real life is found in you through Jesus. Help us to embrace it anew today, we pray, through Jesus. Amen. <laughs>